Hello and welcome to 90% Hits, episode two, the second in a series of podcasts about the number one singles in Australia of the 90s. We counted down five songs from 1990 last week and we will be doing another five songs today. With me, as usual, is Tim Coyle. Hello. Casey Atkins. Good evening. And down the line from the Gold Coast, Tim Byron. Hoi hoi. Oh, and I am Danny Yao. So this week we wanted to carry on from our discussion from last week, but also delve further into our history so listeners can understand who the hell we are. And we thought a good way of doing this was to talk about how we all met. And the, the place to start that, it seems to be, to talk about the first time any of us met, which would have been Casey and Tim Coyle. I, I would have met Casey first day of high school in 1993. Is that correct, Casey? That is correct. Quite, quite a bit of history there. High school being high school and being huge. So it wasn't really until year 10 or so that we really became friends. Yeah, I'd agree. And I think that it was probably the fact that we were two people who both had a genuine interest and opinion on music that helped us become friends as well. So uh, I also remember disagreeing with you quite a lot about music at the time, but that I think helped. It was a healthy disagreement. We liked different things, but there was a, enough of a crossover there to, um, to have something that was worth talking about. And at least I could see that your interest in music was on a pretty similar level to mine, even though it didn't always cross over at the time. So I guess that's where I come into the picture, right, which would have been about 2000. Yeah, well, I moved to Sydney in 99. I think we officially met at a gig where we were both on the bill, but I think we were maybe introduced at the Hopeton during an even gig, and we were both trying to talk to Ash Naylor from Even at the time. Sounds yeah. like me. Yeah, exactly. From from there, we became friends, and, and you asked me to join your band. And so, Tim Coyle, when did you move to Sydney? I moved to Sydney in early 1999 for the first year or six months or so. It wasn't the, wasn't the nicest experience, but starting to, to go to gigs and also Casey moving here and eventually meeting other people like Danny, who I think we met shortly after you'd met Casey because yeah. I was doing some music journalism at the time. And to be honest, I think it might have been at the bat and ball one after. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. Uh, and then Tim Byron entered our lives. And I guess, Tim... Um, yeah, none of us were ever the same. <laughs> <laughs> now, that was Tim, I'm trying to remember as well. I think I met you first. Yeah, so what happened was that um, up until the start of 2004, I lived in Wollongong and had been you know, away from the Sydney music scene. I grew up in Sydney, but I'd moved in to Wollongong to go to uni. And in 2004, I, I came back uh, to Sydney. Um, but there was a Lazy Susan gig that I think I remember Paul Andrews introducing me to Danny. Yeah, and then we did this one weird gig together for in tribute to Elliot Smith. I think that was really what brought us together because yeah. we had that opportunity to play. And then Danny and I had been talking for a while um, about wanting to have um, a keyboard player in the reservations. Mm. I, I but just... I, I very clearly remember um, that there was a gig, possibly that same one or possibly another one, 
um, where I kind of knew that Danny and Casey were in a band, but I didn't really know Casey. And I very clearly remember it was a gig at the Hope Town, and I'd walked all the way from the Hope Town down to um, the, where the buses go near Central. And I remember very remember clearly Casey uh, sitting like two or three sort of seats over. It was past midnight. We were both going home from the gig um, that he was wearing like a, a Josh Rouse T-shirt. And I remember thinking, should I go and talk to him? And then, <laughs> no. <laughs> Definitely me. I remember that T-shirt. Really, really doesn't fit me anymore. <laughs> uh, when did you meet Tim Coyle? Tim Byron? I kind of was vaguely aware of the existence of Tim Coyle. <laughs> uh, many are. Many are. He's like the Higgs boson. <laughs> the, um, the myths of many. <laughs> there was a point where I needed um, to move house, and um, Tim Coyle also needed to li- move house at that point. And so... We kind of were pushed together by Casey, I think, and we moved in in a nice place in Marrickville uh, where Tim was living in a room that didn't have a proper window. Um, but we've all remained pretty pretty close since then. Even when Danny was overseas, we still stayed in, in really uh, close touch and we've just been mates ever since. Yeah, yeah definitely. We're going to dive straight into the next five Australian number ones from 1990. So last week we covered five songs, uh, including classics such as Love Shack by the B-52s and Opposites Attract by Paula Abdul. And this week we're going to start with a song that was number one for four weeks in June 9, 1990. And it's Hearts, All I Want to Do is Make Love to You. looking at me so yeah. <laughs> who wants to start with this one yeah I, I, i'll go i remember it really well i don't think i really liked it it wasn't something that spoke to me particularly well at, at the time it was just one of those slow songs in it and it was everywhere and i don't think i had any sort of particular active dislike for it but it certainly wasn't anything that i was into one of the things i remember really clearly about this song was um some years later when I, when its subject matter actually uh, clicked and I figured out what was going on. Oh, that's going to be the big discussion point, I imagine. Yeah. Yeah, so I still wasn't even 10. So a nine-year-old is not going to get what's going on in the song. 
Um, and I was, I, I look, no idea how old I was when I figured it out, but it was one of those genuine, like, ah, <laughs> 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 moments. Um, Tim Byron, what about you? When did you first well, hear the song and did you like it? Yeah, this is a song that I just recall being on the radio and being around, and I don't think I ever paid attention to it. And in fact, I don't think I realised what it was exactly about uh, until I looked at the lyrics yesterday. <laughs> <laughs> Have you not seen the film clip? I saw it yesterday. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, the we'll wonders come, of YouTube. We'll come back to it. Uh, Tim Coyle? Yeah, I, can, I can't remember the specific instance of first hearing it, but uh, I remember seeing the film clip a lot on, on Rage at the time. And like like everyone else in this room, except that, uh, well, Danny hasn't spoken about it yet. For all we know, it could have been quite precocious in this regard, but I, I, <laughs> didn't, I didn't get it. And it just, I think as Casey said, it's very much a classic soft rock power ballad kind of thing that was dime a dozen at the time. Yeah, it's even it's even a little bit of a carryover from the eighties, if anything. And yeah, I, I did I didn't hate it. I didn't love it though. There were other things going on musically that I was more interested in at the time. So it was just kind of it. It was there. It was part of the part of the background noise. Okay, well, I I totally didn't expect this because this is one of my favourite songs that we're going to talk about ever. Seriously? I love really? this song. Wow. I totally okay. got into well, it. Actually, actually in, in, in retrospect, I th- uh, listening to it the last couple of days, uh, uh, I'm kind of going to agree with you there. I think it's a great song. I love the cheese ball factor. I love the bizarreness of the lyrics. There was just this thing that we're going to talk about when we talk about Richard Marx's Hazard, which is just this weird story song. Well, just... it's, it's, it's actually, it's written like appallingly bad fiction. It's some, of, yeah. some of the lyrics are just so clunky and terrible, but it gets to that final verse and all of a sudden it just it whips around and there's something quite uh, good there. Oh, yeah. So I was obsessed by this song and the film clip. <laughs> And everything about it, like, I got what the story was because the film clip spelled it out so clearly. Fairly explicitly. I didn't have to watch the film clip again this week and I can tell you every single scene that happens <laughs> before it happens. I can't picture the film clip. Oh, there's just this great, it looks like a Bonnie Tyler film clip. You know, she's in a, there's parts of it where she's singing in the motel room, you uh, know, okay. and, and then she picks up the guy and then the last verse, which is, you know, the whole power of the song happened one day, he came around the same way. Just, you know, it's totally played out in the film clip like a short film and she's holding the baby and she sees him and there's this dramatic moment and then the start of the film clip with her driving in the rain, which is all written about in the song, it is hilariously literal. Like, it's almost yeah. a song written for the film clip, Yeah, if that makes any sense. Well, not famously, but it's actually, it's a rewrite of another song, isn't it? Danny's... Dobie Gray, so... Yeah. which is... <laughs> Obscure. Who's most famous for Drift Away? Yeah, um, which is a great Give song. Give me the beat, boys. That's a great song. Yeah, yeah. But um, Hart hate this song. Hart yeah, didn't want to record it. Mm, it, it was it's a Robert Mutt Lang. It's a Mutt Lang. Yeah, it was. It's got his fingerprints all over. Yeah. And so, if you don't know who Robert Mutt Lang is, um, he was the producer who did Back in Black, and he he made a slow decline into crap and crap during the eighties and nineties. He went from ACDC's Black and Black, Back in Black to Def Leppard. He, he did this. He did Brian Adams, lots of his really big singles, like, um, Everything I Do, I Do It For You, The All For Love one, which I think we're going to hear more of those songs. 
He then married Shania Twain, produced most of her stuff, and the last time he was on the charts was with a song he did with Nickelback. Yes. Wow. So, yeah, that's, well, they, that's quite the decline. There you have it. Tim Coyle mentioned something before about uh, being a bit of a holdover from the 80s, which is something that I thought very much when I was listening to it this week. And also when I went back and re-listened to a couple of the songs that we talked about last week, it was interesting what you got in... 1990 uh that really held over from the 1980s tim byron out of out of all of us surely out of the three of you guys i guess who didn't really know or like the song when it first came out have you come around to it not really i mean maybe i'll hear the song differently as something that i've actually paid attention to the lyrics to for the first time yesterday um but before that before that for me it was just another 80s power ballad kind of thing Uh, and like you know, the, the sad thing about it in some ways was that Heart was so good in the 70s. Like, in the first couple of albums were just, like, good rock records from the 70s. That you, you listen to those and then you listen to this and, uh, you know, the 70s stuff is so much better. Well, the other, the other interesting fact about Heart is, again, have to do with who people married. And Nancy married Cameron, Cameron Crowe. And she still, to this day does a lot of the music in Cameron's films. She also, she was the flirtatious woman in the convertible in Fast Times at Richmond High. Oh, really? Yeah, trying to seduce Judge Reinhold. <laughs> Who hasn't? Yeah, we've all been there. Who uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad has been brought up in this particular podcast. Yeah, so, I don't know, I really like Heart. I know that, that this is a kind of, this is kind of a bit like Don't Want to Miss a Thing, like, you know, a late era, kind of really their last gasp in the charts. Yeah. And a song that was imposed on them, that they, they didn't write it and they were more than capable of writing songs. It was one of those songs that I'm sure was doing the rounds in lots of publishers until someone forced it onto a band. It sounds like a radio hit. Yep. It sounds like it's yeah. been crafted within an inch of its life. Much like Eternal Flame would be in mm. a few years' time. Right? But, but the, the thing within that is just even given all the constraints we've put on it, that it has a particular sound which none of us really find that appealing even though it's a completely mawkish melodrama which is for me that's part of its appeal it just it just owns that silliness in in a way they also they just pull it off and play it so well and wilson totally owns that that vocal i don't have anything against the song or the production i mean it works for the song and the way like i'm really fascinated by how well constructed the song is the the way that the lyrics do not give away the punch, like the the twist ending, almost. Like you know, when do we well, get a song? It's, 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 it's the success of, uh, <laughs> the pop music. Yeah, it's but a, it's just so channel. like there's just not a shred of metaphor or anything. <laughs> <I'm> just <laughs> yeah, the song is called "All I Want to Do." Is I know, love. but there's but isn't that but isn't that the thing though? It's like every step you take or the one I love. It's that thing where couples surely they don't play it live. When, when Heart plays, but like, if they were, people would think, oh, this is such a romantic song, or the chorus mm. is just, all I want to do is make love to you, but then it's about a really awful one-night stand, Yeah, which this woman, like, it's I know that it's an awful one-night stand. No, they made this, magic the that night. don't suggest that it was awful. Yeah. <laughs> no, but it's Randy. He bought out the woman in her so many times. Hey, she, he, she was the flower and he was the seed. <laughs> <laughs> or some shit, I don't know. <laughs> oh, I think it's Randy Newman-esque. It's obviously not Ann Wilson, and it's obviously not supposed to be taken 100% seriously. I've listened to it a lot. It's still one of the most played songs on my iPod. 
comes up all the time. <laughs> so I, I would say that all of this, the the five that we're talking about tonight, it was the one that I switched off halfway through the most because mm-hmm. I had the playlist on a bit of a, a you know on on rotation and I just skipped it. <sighs> I, I could just have a playlist with that song. Okay, well, that was Hearts. All I want to do is make love to you. So that was June 9 for four weeks, which is quite amazing. And then a song that I'm surprised was only number one for two weeks in the 7th of July, 1990, and that's Roxette's It Must Have Been Love. If anybody ever wants to hear a great example of the 80s gated reverb on a snare drum, that's this song right really? here. Yes. Yeah. So, Casey, can you explain what a, a 80s gated reverb drum is? Can you explain what goes on and what makes it sound like that? So, it's, I mean, so we know what uh, a reverb is, yeah, so the big, like, a sound like you're in a, a big hall or a cave or something like that. So, what gating the reverb does is... You hit the snare drum, you get the big reverb echo, but then you choke that reverb sound and cut it short by using a, a noise gate. So it just extends the sound of the snare drum by a certain amount of time, depending on how sort of heavily you choke that reverb. So did you like the song, Casey? No, didn't like this one. This one just bored me. It was slow. It was a bit wussy for me. I liked other things like The Look and Joyride and and stuff, which is probably, I think Joyride might be coming up. Uh, But no, this one didn't do a thing for me. Tim Byron, what did you think of this song? It basically didn't do much for me, but I think there were sort of moments or like feelings that I had where it probably would have done something to me. Like that most of the time I wouldn't have liked it, but sometimes I would have, you know, just got into the mood where it would have hit me. It must have been love, but it's over now. It, it's got a good melody. It's a really catchy song, but it, you know, for for an eight-year-old, it's it's kind of like wussy and kind of slow and annoying. Yeah. Tim Coyle? Yeah, I'm with the other guys. It's pretty... It's, <laughs> yeah. It's, it's a sopping love song. Right? And on the Pretty Woman soundtrack, wasn't it? Is that... No? Yep. That was actually the highest grossing film of 1990. Yeah, so... Danny, come on. Look, I love this song. It's a great (laughs) song. I know, it's a solid pop ballad. When you like a band and you're, like, hanging out for the next single, and I totally did, and I remember going to, like, Brashes or whatever and seeing that the new single was out. I didn't buy it. But, yeah, I 
totally love this song. It was great. Just see, see, Rockstar were a band that I didn't like as a band. Like, what they weren't like a favorite band, but I did like a number of songs. So it wasn't like I'm really waiting for the next Rockstar single. I just kind of liked them or I didn't as they as they came. So this one was just one that I didn't. When we get to no. Joyride, I'll probably have more to say. <laughs> <laughs> Tim Byron, did you like Roxette in general? Do you like the songs that came before, the more upbeat pop singles? I mean, I think I was only vaguely aware of this single at the time and vaguely aware of the stuff that happened before. But I did end up buying the, the cassette um, of the album of Joyride. But I remember thinking when I bought that, I thought that it must have been Love was going to be on this album because it was only from the year before, but no, it's on the other one. That happened to me a couple of times where I couldn't believe that when you got a whole album by a band and that song that you knew wasn't on it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I think think basically what we're all sort of feeling, apart from Danny here, is that it was 1990 and, like, power ballads like that that were, like, MTV things that were on some sort of soundtrack were just a dime a dozen. There were so many of them out there at the time, and so I think we were all just sick and tired of them. They definitely had that very Swedish thing in so far as... <laughs> and, and what's that? Oh, you see, you see it. Bork, bork, bork. Keep seeing that meatballs and that Yeah, yeah, kind of the sleek, minimalist furniture. <laughs> but it's it's kind of the not quite getting it in so far as doing an American kind of thing with rock, rock music and kind of getting it but kind of not getting it. And there's always this part of you that's kind of thinking that they were it was a satire of what a rock band. There's a certain kitsch to it. There is, and it's it's interesting. Either it was just they didn't get it, or they got it so well that they were able to parody parody it really well. And part of me wants to think that Roxette were parodying stuff, but I don't think they were. I think they they had a good sense of humor. They called their mm. they called their greatest hits "Don't Bore Us, Get to the Chorus." Yeah. <laughs> um, although I can't remember who said this to me, but it was a shame that Rock Set when they put out their box set didn't call it the Rock Set box set. <laughs> yes, <laughs> they didn't. No, what an opportunity <laughs> was! Well, wow, <laughs> like box set with the TTE at the yeah, end would yeah. have been just perfect. But yeah. so maybe one day, if anyone from EMI is listening, they can uh, sort that out. <laughs> Now we move on to the next song, which is uh, one of, I think, the most 90s songs imaginable. It's You Can't Touch This by MC Hammer. You can't touch this. You can't touch this. You can't touch this. You can't touch this. My, 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 my music hits me so hard, makes me say, oh my Lord, thank you for blessing me. What am I doing? That was number one on the 21st of July for five weeks. And I'm sure we all know this song. So what you're saying, Danny, is that the five weeks from July 21 in 1990 is what we will refer to historically as Hammer Time. (laughs) (laughs) You've been working on that one all week. (laughs) I don't know. Then Prey came along. Um, (laughs) Well, we'll get to that. (laughs) Tim Byron, why don't you start? Tell us about how you feel about this song. Well, I remember thinking that MC Hammer was like the coolest guy 
Like those harem pants, they look so cool at the time. Tim Coyle? Uh, I loved it. And I think everyone loved it at the time. It was, this is just, this is 1990 for me. It was huge. It was everywhere. And yeah, it just dominated everything I can think of about that year. How about now? It still does. (laughs) (laughs) Casey? Um, Oh, look, I'm not going to deny it. Of course I loved it. Everybody loved it. It was the soundtrack of that year really um it was the marker for everything that went before and came after it it was it was huge it was massive it was a a phenomenon and 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 that's that really i love it too it's really interesting right it was almost a defining moment in culture Mm. it was it was just a huge song it's actually the second highest selling song of 1990 overall behind Sinead o'connor and it was the first number one single that was like a rap song like, Opposites Attract had MC Scat Cat in it doing a bit of the rapping. It was, it was not MC it was Hammer. It was not MC Hammer. We were all disappointed to learn last week. But this one was MC Hammer. It was a number one. And I don't think there had been, like, a proper rap song that was a number one in Australia before that. Rap had been floating around the charts for some... I, yeah. I remember it being in and around the charts for some time. And that's interesting in and of itself because this was rap's bubblegum era, really. Like, yeah, I would think that this is probably the first rap song I ever heard. I guess it falls into the definition, even though it sounds a lot like a lot of other radio singles at the time, except it had rap. Like, I mean, musically, it was as produced and as fun and as poppy as anything else. Uh, but it really started this deluge of hip-hop being in the charts yeah. and hip-hop being quite, well, so I was never, I was not never a fan, but, like, I was not aware of, say, public enemy at the time. Uh, but imagine what, imagining what those guys thought. Where Well, quite famously, Ice-T actually stood up for MC Hammer really? at the time. Who, and people found it odd because Ice-T had been quite vocal about uh, rap musicians not being political and seeming to, to, to be selling out or not speaking about African-American experience at the time. But he did qualify that by saying, look, Hammer's always just, he's been pop rap, he's bubblegum. And therefore, he didn't go from trying to be street to being Mm. something else to sell records. He was always what he was. So he actually came out in support of Hammer when he was actually copying a bit of criticism. The interesting thing about, uh, about you can't touch this, um, Reading I Want My MTV, the oral history of MTV, MC Hammer is interviewed in that and he talks about you can't you can't touch this. And basically what he was saying was that this song for him was a response to the epidemic of um crack cocaine that was happening <laughs> believe it or not, um the epidemic of crack cocaine that was happening in the black community at that time. Like it, for for MC Hammer, everything around him was just going to shit. Like the um the late eighties um saw a huge rise in the amount of um, cocaine addicts and like the amount of crack in black communities in in, in America, and that's what where things like NWA and Public Enemy, like how angry they were and how frustrated because like the communities were just falling apart, and that's where a lot of that music came from. And in the same way, MC Hammer sort of argued that um, he was taking that from the opposite point of view, like he, everything was crap, and he wanted to make people have fun. He wanted to make them to dance and and to laugh. Yeah, well, that's kind of where the Hammer fits into that that West Coast style of, of rap and hip-hop, obviously accepting NWA at the time, but it's, it's a little breezier, it's a little more optimistic, uh, it's more about girls and parties. 
And whereas the, the grittier stuff, which was often from, uh, yeah, from say Detroit or New York. So who's uh, who's listened to the song this week? Yeah, I listened. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Danny, yeah, I had a quick listen. Tim, yes. Tim Byron, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, who thought it was terrible? I thought that there were three good things about the song. <laughs> but th- this is, but this, I guess this is my thing. And there were possibly three good things about the song, but those three good things are just repeated ad nauseum. There's, there yeah. seems to be possibly three ideas in the song and three hooks in the song that are just. Casey, hot. stop. Hammer time. Thanks. <laughs> 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 Someone had to, and yeah, and yeah, it had yeah. to be you, I guess. Um, yeah. That are just kind of cobbled together in a seemingly random order, in in order to to make up to the four minutes that the song goes for. Like, it, there's no nothing really structurally really sound yeah, about it. It's really loosely structured. Oh yeah, and the and yeah. the rapping in it's dreadful. <laughs> I'm sorry, yeah. but. It's just nothing. Like he doesn't appear to be again getting back to the thing that he's he's not really saying anything meaningful, and that's fine because it wasn't supposed to be a meaningful song. But he's not, as far he's as he's not I saying could, it well. And he's but he's not saying anything at all. <laughs> not not only is it not saying anything, but it's not even saying like rocking on the dance floor tonight kind of thing. It's just these random words that don't really fit together, and every so often. There's a breakdown and I just, I don't know, I think in retrospect, brilliant for the time, but it, it does not hold up. Yeah. Tim, what were the three things that you liked about the song? The three things I liked the song, about the song is, is a bit in the chorus, and just like the nonchalance way that he kind of says, you can't touch this. <laughs> yeah. Can't touch this. Yeah, yeah. I love that bit. Yeah, I know. But that bit is good. Um, the, the stop and the time, that that was another bit. And, and I like that kind of bit in the middle of the song, like the kind of bridgey kind of thing where where you have all the people going, oh, oh, oh. Yeah. You know that bit? Yeah, I know. Yeah, so those are the three bits I liked. And the sample's good, but I don't know whether that counts. The second part I find more hilarious as the years go on, especially, you know, having been a fan with two of you, imagining coming up with a song and then coming to you guys and go, okay, this bit now, I say stop. Because it's hammer time. <laughs> like stop the owl time. <laughs> it just like it just seems like such a bizarre songbook. But there was a, there was also the whole thing of the persona of Hammer at yeah. the time as well. In so far as it was this very cartoonish. I mean, we discussed he's not actually a cartoon cat last week, <laughs> but Hammer himself was kind of this cartoonish figure in a way. And that's what well, makes it was a good fit for, like, the Adams family. Well, oh. yeah, the, the Adams groove. The Adams family it? groove. Oh, yeah. yeah. That was dreadful. Does anyone remember that? Yeah. yeah they do I, what I they want to do, say what they want to do. Yeah. Et cetera. Off, off his brilliantly named follow-up album, Too Legit to Quit. Too Legit. Was that Hammer? That was Hammer. Yep. Yeah. Did anyone ever see Pumps and a Bump? No. No. <laughs> So, so Pumps and a Bump is MC Hammer's, like, it's the song that killed his career. And it's, it's from 93 or 94 or so. And it's got that kind of, um, Dr. Dre kind of production that, you know, that, like, sort of synth sound that, like, is that high sort of, um, you know, sort of, 
that kind of sound that would be in the background and stuff. And um, the video clip for it, um, Hammer spends the whole time like around this sort of pool with lots of, you know, women in bikinis. And basically Hammer spends most of this in a thong. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> and basically you can see much more of MC Hammer than you ever wanted to see. Given the man is also a preacher, that's that's a daring move, shall we say. I think perhaps um, making that video clip was the thing that drove him to the church. The thing with Hammer, um, the reading through I Want My MTV, was um, the, the impression you get from that book is just how huge he was at this point. Like how like that Michael Jackson was ringing up MC Hammer, worried that MC Hammer was going to like supplant him as the king of pop. Because that's the kind of thing Michael Jackson would do. Wasn't there a thing, one of the video clips featuring... Michael Jackson impersonator and hammer dueling over the white glove. Yeah, possibly. I, I think that that was a thing. And that's the kind of thing Michael Jackson would have found threatening or like or funny depending on the mood he was in. So when's the last time any of us heard or saw MC Hammer on telly? Like he, he did have a reality TV series. Didn't he? he was on reality TV for a while? I think. I. I've got no idea. Like Adam's Family Groove is like the last <laughs> thing I really remember. Yeah, to, to be honest, that's the last concrete memory of, of Hammer, other than my looking him up today right, right. that I can remember. I, I do kind of vaguely remember there was a little bit of a thing surrounding his TV appearances a while ago, but it's fake. But surely somebody like um, Hammer could go out today and do a four-minute appearance, perform, you can't touch this, make 500 grand, and and that'd be it. No way. Surely. 500 could. No. I saw White Said Fred play um, <laughs> a small club oh. in London, and they would have been paid. Two maybe, bags of crisps. Yeah, maybe $20,000 I'm sorry, but White Said Fred to MC Hammer... No, it's a, it's a different league. I mean, you would have to have the right thing. I mean, they were launching a big gay club in London, and it was they were the headliners, and you know it was big press, and they did all this press for it, and it was a big deal. But it was a small nightclub, like a cool nightclub, like probably as big as a good nightclub in Sydney. But yeah, MC Hammer was bubblegum pop. That you know there was enough people who listened to say it must have been love, and that was the song of their first high school breakup. And they loved them, and they would love them forever for it. But MC Hammer was not the soundtrack of my first time when someone told me I can't touch something. <laughs> so, <laughs> and I have no. <laughs> it's happened so many times. <laughs> <laughs> it's not the first time someone told me to pray um, or do the Adam's family group. <laughs> this is, I guess, uh, for me anyway was another rap song. Uh, this was three weeks, number one, on the 25th of August. Faith No More's Epic. It's a 
So here's another really interesting example of a song that I loved at the time. I absolutely loved it. I remember remember how much I loved the the clip and that thing that I think we'd all probably remember with the piano exploding at the end. Does everyone remember that? That's what oh, yeah. really gets me. Oh, really? I that- one of the most disturbing things in all film clipdom is in this film clip, which is the dying fish. I don't even remember that bit. It's right at the end, just before the piano blows up, and he's playing it, and there's a fish just that they've just taken out of water, and it's flopping around and dying. Oh. And it is the most dis- – I just remember being really upset about that. So, um, so yeah, and, I, and I, I loved it. I couldn't wait for it to come on. I loved the piano exploding, everything like that. Um, and I listened to it this week. <laughs> And it's shit. <laughs> 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 it's just this terrible, like a precursor to your, um, to your Fred Durst mm. and your that kind of rap metal thing. And that hadn't occurred to me, but since somebody said that, I was like, "Yeah, you're right." And that rapping is so bad, so bad. It's a great chorus, really good chorus, and it's some, you know. Good guitar licks and good guitar sounds and a good band sound, but just that rapping is so bad I can't get past it. Tim Byron, what did you think of the song? Um, I had no memory of it whatsoever in 1990. I don't think I ever heard it in 1990. When I would have started hearing that song would have been 95 or 96 as I started getting into alternative music. And I had a friend who had an older brother who really liked Faith No More, so I heard that song and liked that song at about that point. But I wouldn't have heard it at the time. I had no memory of hearing it. I was surprised to find it had been a number one. Do you like it now? Um, I kind of agree with Casey in a bunch of ways. I think it's got the really good guitar licks. The piano bit at the end is just like, um, it's beautiful. It, it's very pretty. And it's like, I wish there was more of it in the song. Um, and that's me being a piano dude, I guess. Uh, but yeah, the, I mean, it, it, it does have that kind of rap metal kind of thing because they are playing metal music and he is rapping. And um, it it reminds me of Red Hot Chili Peppers and that kind of you know slap. There's got the slap bass, and I, I I have sentimental memories about it. I think from like when I was about fifteen. But yeah, it's not something that you find yourself going to as a song yeah. these days. I mean, it's interesting because the most recent Muse album, The Second Law, has a song on it which really does sound quite a lot like um, Faith No More of that era. It's got the slap bass and it's got the kind of the thing that Muse do sort of over the top of this kind of Faith No More-ish kind of thing. And it's like listening to that, I laugh. And I think like listening to this, it's kind of almost funny now. Tim Coyle, what about you? Yeah, I I wasn't a huge fan of the song, mostly because combined with the film clip, it just freaked me out. It was, it was scary and weird. And... I was trying to think about specifically what it was that that weirded me out about it. I wasn't a big fan of aggressive music at the time. Mm. It's something I eventually came around to, but at the time, it just it just wasn't something that I enjoyed. And this is quite an aggressive song, and also part of the being freaked out about it was kind of that that coda at the end that it's it, what's it, what. It's it. What is it <laughs> I, I don't know. I, I forget. I forget it. But either either it's some terrible existential statement, or 
referring to the clown in the Stephen King book, which I think was made into a film, which absolutely terrified me at the time, yeah, I think I'm- a year earlier or something. So maybe that played into my being absolutely terrified of it. And, of course, the film clip is it has a lot of those surrealist tropes within it. But, yeah, it's, as Daddy says, it's disturbing. There's fish f- flailing around and things exploding and the single eye in the palm of a hand or something yeah. like that and doors opening. It was just, yeah, it was too much for me. Yeah. Mike, Patton's, Mike Patton's eyes as well, like in that film clip, he is so staring into you and he's doing that weird dance and he's dressed so weirdly. I imagine he must hate himself in that film clip, you know. Well, it's, a, it's really a bit of an outlier, isn't it, insofar as you see oh, Faith No More at number one, whereas my current or my impression of Faith No More before seeing that was that they were quite an alternative band at the time, which is probably quite true for the most part. But th- and this song doesn't strike me as particularly representative of... Other things they did. It's kind of, but it's the same. It's the same thing as what we were speak, talking about um, with Aerosmith last week. Mm. It's that that or, even though Jane's got a gun and, and Epic are not similar in, in any way, but um, there's a parallel in terms of I don't think that that these particular songs sound a lot like uh, what's particularly representative of, of that band. Mm. I think um, Epic is pretty representative of where they were on that particular album. There's a couple of other songs like Falling to Pieces, which sort of sound a bit like Epic. They've got the same clitter sound to them. And after that, they um, they went into weirder places on the next album, which had the cover of Easy, which I think we'll end up talking about as well. And then after that, they uh, the next album after that, uh, King for a Day, Fool for a Lifetime, um, they really went alternative on that album. Like They got rid of all the slap bass. They got rid of like the sort of you know, that metal-y kind of sounds, and it was a very sort of hard rock kind of album. It's kind of the way that Metallica did the same thing about the same time on Load. Wow, you're comparing that excellent Faith No More album to Load. (laughs) Really? Man, that album had evidence. That album had so Yeah, I think that album is still great, I have to say. Um, It's just like the sound of it went in that kind of the same direction that the sound of Load went into. And I don't think Load is that bad an album because I'm not that much of a Metallica fan who gets upset about these things. I think it's a reasonably good hard rock album. It was a load of something, definitely. <laughs> um, that, I mean, I wanted to get into this. I wanted to talk about Faith No More in general. And they are one of those bands that there are so many tracks that I still love to this day. I've seen them twice. Uh, I saw them on their last ever tour of Australia before they broke up the first time around. I was the first one to get tickets when they reformed recently. Yeah, so I think they were a great band, and this is just one of those weird... It's like Killing in the Name of... It's like all those sort of things where yeah. these bands had one really big song. And, and so here's the other thing I wanted to talk about with this song, is that how the hell did it get to number one? This is before Nirvana. Yeah, this it's, is a, bef- it's a great question. I thought of that um, listening to today or in the last couple of days, and when I saw it coming up on the list, I was, I was kind of... I remembered it being number one, um, but looking at the songs that we've... we've talked about so far it's just there's nothing that really points it in that direction right mm. but it, it's it's a little bit of a precursor of what's to come in a, in a way it's but you know they weren't a band that had a couple of singles before that kind of mm. were leading them to a number one they weren't a no. band that had a sound that was in that they were capitalizing on 
There was nothing else like this. One could compare it to everything that's come before it in what we've looked at so far. It sounds nothing. It sounds nothing like nothing yeah. mm. like it. Uh, Casey was saying that the, the, the guitars actually sound quite good. The production sounds reasonably modern, yeah, uh, and contemporary uh, on, on it. It's it just does not sound like anything around it in that in the charts that year. So yeah, I have looking at this. This week, I have new appreciation for Faith No More being the pioneers of alternative. Like, really, it predates Rat Cat, predates Nirvana, and, you know, it's amazing that radio did play it. It's amazing that mm. people went and bought it. Um, I just think it's an amazing... I don't quite understand it, and I think maybe do, do you were too think, young to... Yeah, do you think maybe the quote-unquote rapping contributed to that success a little bit? Yeah. It's also a catchy song. Yeah, yeah. It's a great chorus. It's catchy chorus. Yeah. It, it's, it's super catchy. It's, it's got a nice repetition to it and a nice rhythm to it. And the, you know, the melody of the chorus is like really sort of uplifting in a way, sort of. Well, mm. the, the string stings on the It's It part are quite dramatic and visceral. So I guess that's uh, that says it for Faith No More's epic. So yeah, August 25, number one for three weeks. So that's still. Pretty decent. Pretty decent. Um, but nowhere near as good as uh, the song that was number one on the 15th of September 1990 for six weeks. Uh, this is John Bon Jovi, Blaze of Glory. John Bon Jovi solo song. And it's, does anyone know why that was? It was from a movie. It was from yeah, the Young the Guns Guns soundtrack. But like, so Sam Bora and all that just sat it out? Or? Well, I, I actually, I didn't look into, um, it, I do- didn't- it doesn't sound unlike a Bon Jovi song. So do we like the song? Tim yeah. Coyle? I, 
Yeah, I, I really liked the song at the time. Bon Jovi was huge, I remember. It was just one of those universal acts. Listening to it today, I might meet with some resistance here, but the way I will put it, if you play Blaze of Glory back-to-back with Living on a Prayer, there is just no comparison. Blaze of Glory is just, it's a piece of shit. (laughs) (laughs) But It's, it's, It's just knocked out. It's phoning it in. The lyric is terrible. It's just, there's... No. It's not prime Bon Jovi. No, it's not. It's it's uh, this even even though it's not prime Bon Jovi, there are some anthemic aspects to it, but it's not it just does not grab you by the hair and toss you up in the air in the way <laughs> that a good Bon Jovi song will do. Tim Byron, what about you? You know, with Blaze of Glory, like listening to it this week, what I remember thinking was being surprised at how country it was. Like there's all those sort of country licks in the verse and that kind of stuff. But I think at the time, I really think I didn't really hear the song very much, apart from in the ad for the movie. And so I really know the chorus really well, because I think the ad for the movie was played quite a lot, and I probably saw that. But I don't remember the rest of the song. It's one of those songs that has the big chorus, and the rest is kind of, eh. <laughs> I think um, I think the video clip is pretty much an ad for the movie, isn't it? That's, that's it's just a rattlesnake in Bon Jovi, kind of go mano a mano. <laughs> but that's oh, it's one of those clips that I remember, like a like a few things that we've talked about, and that will that we will talk about, where there are a lot of scenes from the movie mm-hmm. in the clip to that song. There are a lot. Um, Did you I, like the song? I loved it. I, really? Yeah, 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 yeah. Definitely. And and to be honest was probably of the five that we've talked about tonight was my favourite to listen to again. I was getting into the guitar thing at that stage as well, maybe the first time I ever heard or at least noticed slide guitar because mm. that's a really specific sort of slide guitar riff. The guitar playing is really great and Danny's just pointed out to me here that the uh, the solo on it was actually not played by the, the Bon Jovi band in it, but the guitar work was done by Jeff Beck. Which explains a lot because it's a great guitar solo as well. And now that we know it, it's easily my first encounter with Jeff Beck. I, I guess I see what you're saying, Tim, about the um, that put up against another Bon Jovi single, but I still think it stands up. And I have to say the vocal performance is spectacular, absolutely well, spectacular. It, it, for mine... That's something that goes without saying mm. with a with a Bon Jovi song. It's that all those things are always impeccable, but yeah, it's just the way it's written and that the country pastiche thing. I, I just find a little deflating. So, are we, when we say country, are we saying the Western thing? It's definitely a country and Western thing, and it's also tied into Western films for me at a time where what is the iconic. American cinematic experience was falling to bits, really. And the Young Guns films were trying to revive it, and they were really bad westerns. It's for me, it's it's in a similar vein to the Young Guns film. It's trying to recreate this a certain tone and a certain feel yeah. that it just doesn't quite get. Uh, I like this song. I guess I'm pretty more in the Tim Coil boat that. If I'm listening to Bon Jovi, I don't really go for this song. I do recognise that it does have a couple of really cool bits. Again, that sort of Western opening riff. The fact that it works so well as a movie song because of that, you know, it's a decent lyric, it's a decent 
image, blaze of glory, the vocal performance, yes. Um, but, yeah, I don't know. It doesn't really go all the way for me. Well, not that Living on a Prayer did because he was only halfway there. But, um, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it's just, I don't know. Yeah, it's... it's but it's like a quarter of the way there. <laughs> exactly. For, for, yeah, for me, it just ties in very well with the, the Young Guns thing insofar as this is an aspect of Americana. It's an aspect of the American imagination that people had just lost belief in. It wasn't capturing people's imaginations <laughs> anymore. And I think that comes out in the song. It's just there's not the kind of conviction there. Part of what you listen to Bon Jovi for is that <laughs> <laughs> there's utter conviction in the, the absurd things that he does, which is great. Yeah, I, I don't know. I, um, I I felt it then. I still feel it now. <laughs> so I don't think we get another chance to talk about Bon Jovi, really. Uh, I'll find one. Well, I guess the question is just then, how do we feel about Bon Jovi overall? I um, I remember going through a, a phase. It was a pretty short phase, I've got to admit, and I remember getting the album, like what, uh, asking for and getting the album Keep the Faith for Christmas. <laughs> yes. Ooh, I, yeah. yeah. Um, and being well into that, I still have it somewhere, I think. Apart from that, I didn't have another album album from start to finish. Uh, but, you know, they were great songs. They were really, really great songs. Richie Sambora has, well, like, two moves as a guitarist, though. <laughs> oh, really? You don't rate him? Uh, I'll, I'll just leave it at that. It's not that they're bad moves, and he does them really well, but he's got, like, two moves. But he always makes those polls of, like, great guitar players. and Yeah. So does, <laughs> but, I mean, so does Carlos Santana, and don't get me started. <laughs> Tim Byron, what about you? How do you feel about Bon Jovi? I, I hate Bon Jovi. It's just really not my thing. It's just it's just such bland music. It's not aggressive enough to like really work as metal. It, it, it's not clever enough to work as like clever pop. It doesn't sort of feel authentic. It's just nothing. I don't dig it at all. That's okay, Tim. You've been wrong before. <laughs> uh, yeah. I, I look. I, I like it for for what it is. It's, yeah. Yeah. I, I like I like the big anthemic thing. I like the the blue collar thing. It's I just like that he he goes to the places that he goes. I'm the same. Like I mean, maybe not in the last ten years, but there was a while there when a new Bon Jovi single was just like revisiting an old friend, and they were just like, yeah. And then and then it begot it kind of began to to be an old friend that you'd met. That dozen times. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. That, point. that old friend who just keeps hanging around hasn't changed in years. Yeah. <laughs> still got that terrible mullet haircut and is wearing the denim jacket. And Tim Byron, okay, if you had to choose, Tim Byron, what, and you were on a desert island, what would be the one Bon Jovi song? If you had to take a Bon Jovi <laughs> song with you, what would it be? Like, as a non fan, do you have a track that stands out? Living on a Prayer. Yeah. Um, the thing that JD says about it um, is that whenever she would like be at parties with people, the point where she feel like, yeah, now's the time to go home is when living on a prayer starts up when people start singing along to that because it means they're drunk enough to sing along to John Bon Jovi. It's time to go home. Yeah, wow. Okay. Casey, what about you? Um, what's the song with the full-on um, talk box thing going in the um – is that Living on a Prayer that starts yeah. with the... Wow, 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 wow. Yeah, okay, we'll go with that. Okay. Yeah, i got to go with Living on a Prayer. 
Bird. Really? Well. Yeah, it's it's well, it's the archetypal Bon Jovi anthem. It's just got everything that's good about Bon Jovi distilled, and everything that's absurd about Bon Jovi as well distilled into the the one song. Um, Danny, I, I really like a lot of their singles, but if I'm to be completely rational about it, the most played Bon Jovi song on my iPod is Someday I'll Be Saturday Night. So I just really love that song. Yeah, it's, yeah. Song. it's very Springsteen, mm. and it's about, you know, a kid who's, you know, down and out, and it's a real story song. And so well, so Springsteen is the big touchstone yeah, for it's Bon Jovi, a, obviously being a Jersey, Jersey boy thing. himself. Yeah, it's, it's kind of got that Jersey blue collar uh, thing about it. I think we're at the tail end of the, the Springsteen imitators from the 80s and the early 90s here with Bon Jovi still being in the charts. I think John Mellencamp still kicking around for a couple of years. Yeah, John yeah. Mellencamp has some great singles in the 90s. I'm going to stand by that. <laughs> <laughs> Key West into Mezzo in brackets, oh, I Saw You First. That was a great <laughs> song. But anyway... Um, well, I guess that wraps it up for us for another 90% hits, except out of the five songs we discussed, which is your favourite? So, just to recap, we have yeah, Heart, All I Want to Do Is Make Love To You, Rock Set, It Must Have Been Love, MC Hammer, You Can't Touch This, Faith No More's Epic, and John Bon Jovi's Blaze of Glory. So, Tim Coyle? Well, listening to them all this week, You Can't Touch This may be the happiest and yeah. brought back the best memories. So I'm, I'm going to go with that. It was the most fun. Tim Byron? I think I'm going to say Epic by Faith No More. I think it's the one that has the most memories for me, really, because I did really like that song, you know, 95, 96 or so, like when I was sort of getting into alternative music. And I think, like, I think it was the one that made me the happiest when I was listening to it. Like the, the other sort of power ballads that are there, like the Bon Jovi song and the, the rock set and heart were just kind of plodding along in a way. And MC Hammer, like there's the three good bits, and if the rest of the song was made of the three good bits, then it would be the number one. But, yeah, I, I think it's a reasonably weak five songs, personally. Okay. Casey? Plays of Glory. Yeah, you already said that earlier, but yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I, I will agree with you, though, Tim Byron, that it's – there's no, there's no love shack in this lot. It's, I think it is a little bit weak. Mine would easily be hearts. All I want to do <laughs> is make love to you. It is, it is the only song where when I listened to it this week, um, the rest I hadn't heard for years. Heart I probably listened to a couple of weeks ago. It honestly is just a song that I love. So uh, thank you, everyone, for listening out there, and thank you, everyone, who's with me. Casey, where can people find more of our work on the internet? Um, so we've got 90% hits at gmail.com if you want to send us any uh, thoughts or suggestions, recommendations, or sh- like share any of your experiences about uh, and memories of these songs. Um, and we do have 90%hits.tumblr.com as well, um, percent in both instances spelled out in words. <laughs> <laughs> I guess that kind of wraps it up. So thank you f- for listening and see you next week. It's been seven hours and fifty Oh, 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 time Just watch the In the earth was last night's bed